If a trail is to be blazed, send a ranger. If an animal is floundering in the snow, send a ranger. If a bear is in a hotel, send a ranger. If a fire threatens a forest, send a ranger. And if someone needs to be saved, send a ranger. Stephen T. Mather, first director of the National Park Service. Welcome to the Roaming the Earth podcast. I am your host, Drea Castro, and today I am here with Drew Gilmore. Drew Gilmore is 58 years old and is a retired U.S. National Park Service Chief Ranger with 32 years of service. During his career in the NPS, he worked in 10 national parks, as well as detailing to many other sites and other government agencies on law enforcement, wildland fire, homeland security, and other risk assignments, including the Space Shuttle Columbia disaster and hurricanes on the Gulf Coast. He has traveled to 28 countries and all 50 states. He has a variety of interests, including travel, bird watching, backpacking, hiking, camping, history, aviation, kayaking, scuba and snorkeling, dog sledding, and ocean voyages. He enjoys traveling by small expedition vessels and ships and has even traveled across several oceans, seas, and rivers across the globe. Following retirement in 2017, he started section hiking the Appalachian Trail. He has completed 725 miles of the AT from Harpers Ferry, West Virginia to Hanover, New Hampshire. He has plans on finishing the other 1,427 miles in three section hikes once the COVID-19 pandemic is over. When he's not traveling, he lives with his girlfriend, Stacy, in La Crescent, Minnesota, with their two Alaskan Malamutes and one Alaskan Husky, two of which are retired sled dogs. Together, they enjoy traveling and exploring the world. Thank you so much for being here. I'm, I'm very, very excited to talk to you, Drew. Thank you, thank you so much. So tell me about that quote, the two quotes that you read. Why did you choose to read that? And what does that mean to you? When I started thinking about uh, what to write for this, um, those are two things that popped out in my head. I've taught a lot of classes in the National Park Service um, about where we get our authority for uh, the managing of the national parks. And the one about uh, Send a Ranger was by one of the first directors of the National Park Service. Um, and I, I've always enjoyed it. It was just, you know, classic early park ranger. It's so true. When I when I read that, it kind of made me laugh because that <laughs> there's. I'm sure you guys have to deal with a lot of different situations. And yeah, rangers are really really important. Yes, um, I've dealt with all kinds of things, and every park is different. Uh, we have over 411 at the last count. Uh, there may be a few more than that. Uh, but every park is different. Every park has its unique um, the items that make the park special and also unique problems that uh, make it uh, difficult to run in some cases and uh, a challenge. I'm excited to jump into some of those challenges and find out uh, a few things, but first... Can you, so you spent the last 30, 32 years, right? 30 or 30, right. yeah, 32 years working 
for the National Park Service and law enforcement and so many different things. You have this whole career. So for you, what does travel mean to you? Travel for me, it, it's, it's different because I worked in basically managing a place that people go on vacation. Um, people travel from all over the world to go to some of the places. And I've lived in some of these places to the point of I get used, I got used to it. And, you know, I lived like in Big Cypress National Preserve. I could kayak literally out my back door and go for miles eventually into the Everglades National Park. I had manatees and alligators and uh, Florida panthers would roam near the house. Um, you know, Devil's Tower, I lived there for eight years as chief ranger. And I took, I must have taken over a thousand pictures of just um, everyday you know, life of the tower and the light and the seasons. Um, but every, every, every park has its challenges and it just takes a special person to work in, in these uh, places. Some places are tougher than others and people that they rotate in and out fairly quickly. Others like say Yellowstone used to, if you got in there at the beginning of your career, you, you left when you retired. You talk to me, though, like before becoming a national park ranger, travel kind of ran through your blood. It did. Um, my fa my parents traveled. Uh, they were both in the military during World War II, and they traveled to the Pacific and to Europe. And then when they came home and met, um, they started taking my brother, my sister and I on trips. Um, we would go to Maine every summer and explore everything that's great about the state of Maine, including Acadia National Park and just uh, relaxing at a lake and uh, hiking in the woods. And we would go offshore to an island called Machaya Seal Island that was Canadian island. It's probably my first international trip. Uh, basically, we went out in a lobster boat. There was no customs <laughs> except for the uh, lighthouse keeper met us and you know, shook our hands. And, we would bring um, gifts for the lighthouse keeper, mainly food stuff that they couldn't get it. Um, we'd bring it with us, kind of a thanks for letting us roam around <laughs> your island. Um, and then we would travel other places, the Cape Hatteras National Seashore, um, down to Florida. My first time I went to Big Cypress, where I would dr I drove past the place I would live for a couple of years, not wow. knowing. It's kind you of had like no idea. I, like I live where I live now is we traveled past here literally three miles up the road from on our, our big great western trip on the way back home basically in high school i started traveling overseas with family uh we went to england and scotland and mexico and costa rica and the british and the u.s virgin islands and i kind of got caught up in it and i really enjoyed travel and after i started working my mother with who was also a world traveler had been to 40 countries, all seven continents, um, said, hey, you want to go on a trip with me? I had, you know, it's a good government job with lots of leave. So I would take, you know, breaks and go and travel with her. We went to Africa twice, uh, wow. visited four countries there, Zimbabwe, Zambia, Botswana, and Tanzania, and went on safari, basically. And I remember asking my boss about, well, can I have a month off? And he's kind of like, <laughs> yeah. You're going to Africa? Absolutely. I said, that's a great thing. I, you know, that's a great so, boss. <laughs> and I'll see you when I get back. Yeah, he was. 
Um, so a month later, I came back. I had some leave, but it was I just started with the National Park Service. Travel to you is something that kind of kind of ran in the family. So of course. And one of the big things that I found that I really enjoy is the Arctic regions of the planet. I've been to uh, uh, Soviet or Russian Siberia, wow. uh, Alaska above the Arctic Circle and out in the Aleutians and, and uh, the Bering Sea. Uh, been down to Churchill, Manitoba in Canada and seen the polar bears. Wow. Uh, up to Newfoundland and Iceland and then Greenland. And one of the big trips that Stacy and I took was um, on a small 90 foot fishing vessel from Greenland down across the um, Arctic Circle and eventually ended up in the uh, French overseas territory of, of St. Pierre and Miglion. Um, wow. Near, the uh, province of Newfoundland in Canada. Obviously, you've traveled a lot. With all of that, why? why? What is it about travel that makes you keep wanting to do it? Um, I think it's just the unknown, um, seeing new places, having great experiences. Uh, during this pandemic, I've been sort of sitting at home, kind of pacing a little bit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and looking at looking at Instagram and seeing where all these people um, are around the world and uh, going, oh, I'd like to go there. I'd like to go yeah. there. And you know, I'd been to Iceland and, and Greenland. I had some and Scotland before, but I'd had some um, trips that I was sort of planning out. But then the pandemic came along, so I've been sort of itching to to do something and 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 go places. Um, I know what we you mean. usually go to Montana every summer, and um, we didn't get to do that last year. We explored Minnesota. Basically, I've been to Minnesota, Wisconsin. You know what this has this whole pandemic has taught me is to just explore my backyard a little bit more. You know, because there are some places there; and they're different. You know, it's not like I'm going to Africa or anything, <laughs> but you right. can learn a lot in your own backyard. We have a national wildlife refuge. It's about 25 minutes from our house. And, oh, that's wonderful. Um, we started going up there in all the seasons and taking walks, you know, for a couple hours and take the dogs with us. And um, you start seeing it through the seasons and the, yeah. the change of the weather and the wildlife and the, the trees and the vegetation. Yeah. So why have you chosen the Park Service as a career? What inspired um, you? What inspired you to go, you know what? I really love this. I, th I think I was looking at an aviation career. And at the time, there was a glut of pilots uh, around, the, around the world, uh, high-time pilots with military experience and big airline experience. And just trying to break into it uh, was, was getting tougher and tougher. So I ended up with a seasonal job at a small national historical park, uh, Marstown National Historical Park in New Jersey yeah. that covered the Revolutionary War when George Washington spent several winters there. I worked in a maintenance job and I talked to rangers, interpretive rangers and protection rangers and administrative staff and, and the maintenance guys. And they all kind of said, hey, you know, this is a great career to get into. And I said, I started thinking about it. And having had exposure as Earlier on in my my childhood, going to national parks, I said, "Yeah, it is. I don't want to work indoors in an office." Um, 
you know, my mother would commute in New York City. She had a, a job as an editor there and do that every day on the train from Marstown. And oh, I said, I don't want to live in the city and I don't want to have to, you know, commute. Um, the ironic thing, my first permanent job with the National Park Service, I commuted in New York every day driving uh, <laughs> after doing long hours at the Statue of Liberty at Ellis Island. So <laughs> how old were you? Believe it or not, I was 21 when I first got my first maintenance job with the Park Service. Wow, you're and, a baby. <laughs> yeah, and two years later, I got, um, well, like the next year I worked at Glacier National Park. and I, Oh, my favorite. I flew to Minneapolis, got on the uh, Amtrak from there, which took me right to East Glacier. And uh, a couple of days later, I was in the backcountry working on trails and, wow. and living among the grizzly bears in the mountains. I went there for the first time this past summer, and I've never explored that area. I was supposed to go to Africa this year, uh -huh. uh, and I couldn't, you know, because because the pandemic. So I was like, all right, let me explore my own country, you know. And that area I haven't really done. So we so we went up to Glacier, and we went up to also the Grand Tetons. And I just fell in love. Glacier is so incredible. I want to do more of the backcountry. It's like my goal next year is hopefully go back there and, and explore a little bit more. But incredible park. Incredible Yeah, park. I was a, a backcountry ranger in the northeast corner of, wow. in the Belly River subdistrict. And we were right smack on a Canadian border. We would. Wow. Uh, and there was just lakes and, and uh, you had to go to our backcountry ranger station was a seven mile hike. And oh my we would, God. We would go in further and further by horseback um, to uh, spike camps where we would work for several days rather than walking back and forth all the time. Um, we would see grizzly bears and mountain goats and moose wow. and elk and uh, amazing bird life and, you kept clean by uh, going in a sweat sauna that we we built and, and sweating with the rocks and getting out and jumping in the glacial stream. Um, it was a great summer. Uh, wow. It's beautiful up there. It is so beautiful. You are so lucky you got to do Glacier in your, the be very beginning of your career. That is it was. I mean, I, lucky. I'm glad I did a lot of the big parks at the beginning of the careers because as you got permanent and and moved up it was it was tougher to get get those those key jobs but uh i kind of let the park service i went with a flow where the jobs were and so i ended up going to different places and every national park that i visited had its unique um things that you'd liked about it uh, it's one of the questions i get asked a lot is what's your favorite park yeah that's one of my and, questions <laughs> <laughs> and I always say it's tough to um, to pick one, and I'll, I'll let you ask that later. But the, the reason is that each one is different. Which, well, which one is your favorite? Uh, believe it or not, it was Grand Tetons. That place I just Me too. fell in love with. <laughs> um, and, you know, I liked, I liked all the parks I worked in. But that one was just unique. It was this, the summer of 1988. I was a wildland firefighter, basically in the right place at the right time because Yellowstone National Park and the whole Yellowstone ecosystem uh, burned that summer. It was wow. fires everywhere. Wow. And so I was just constantly going on fires, and I just had this high adrenaline job for the whole summer, flying on helicopters and spiking out. And 
Um, wow. When I go to Yellowstone now, they, they have exhibits on the fire of 88. And I kind of look at myself and I go, I'm a museum exhibit. You were there. I was there. You know, you I could there. point out places on maps and I was there. And I could tell the history of the fires. And, wow. And wow. What did you learn? What was the most valuable thing you learned that summer? I think it was working with people, uh, patience. Um, you know, there's there was a lot of people that, uh, you know, I call them in, in my seasonal years that was, Rangers that were like gods to me because um, they knew everything. They'd done everything. Uh, I had a chief or a district ranger at Kings Canyon National Park, mm-hmm. my first LE job, um, who had a patch over one eye. He was just a scary looking. <laughs> he had this German shepherd that was a search dog that had been an Alaskan state trooper dog. And when it retired, he, he got a hold of the dog. And um, we would go to like Smokey the Bear. Uh, programs and i i'd get to the one because i was the new seasonal kid i'd i get to wear the smoking bear costume you'd sit in the pickup truck and the german shepherd would would want to basically tear my throat out <laughs> but uh the seasonal the uh the permanent rangers back when i was a seasonal were were, were great and you know, when I ended up being a, a supervisor years later, I'd have the new newer generations coming along that wanted to be the chief ranger on their first day. And you kind of got to, you know, <laughs> not without hurting their feelings and getting everybody all upset. You know, you just kind of got to tell them, you know, you'll get there eventually. <laughs> you got a lot to learn. <laughs> tell me about that fire. What was that like? The uh, Yellowstone fires? Yeah, the Yellowstone one. It was a series of a bunch of big fires. I remember being in Culture Bay um, in the north end of the the Tetons and seeing the the smoke columns that looked like atomic bomb clouds coming for miles around the northern end up there. They were huge. And with, with global warming and the fire situation these days, that was probably one of the first big summers um, other than if you went way back in fire history, like ni- the 1910 fires in the West that burned thousands, hundreds of thousands of acres and, and some of the other fires in the, in the early history of the United States. But these were the first modern fires that were just burning totally out of control. Um, my first fire was near, that summer was n- near Dubois, Wyoming. And we went in and 10 minutes after getting off the bus, we're getting pounded by air tankers, dropping fire retardant and digging line and losing line and coming off the line and having to start over the next day. Then I got home, went, worked with a bunch of smaller fires that summer. And they sent me up to Yellowstone for the Clover Mist fire, which was a huge fire in the Southeast corner of the park, mostly wilderness area. Uh, matter of fact, I think it was all wilderness area. It eventually merged with a bunch of other fires, so they they sort of came out of the wilderness area. But I was with a crew of eight, and we flew in um, to the backcountry, landed. A helicopter took off, and they said, "Well, we're going to be sending in the rest of your crew, which was a a twenty, another fourteen people, or no correction, twelve, and uh, that'll make up your crew, and there'll be more crews coming in here, and you guys can manage the hell of spot and start fighting fire, and you, you get off." The helicopter took off 
and we're standing there going, okay, where do we start? Because we're right in the middle of this blaze. I mean, the meadow we we're in had burned off, so we have a safety zone. Uh, we built a landing spot. Um, the smoke jumper aircraft came in and dropped supplies um, wow. to us, water and food, uh, more helicopters, shuttled people and gear in. And then we just worked for, for the next 11 days. Um, the interesting thing at the time, communications aren't like they are now. The uh, Tetons called Yellowstone to ask how their fire crew was doing. And they said, what fire crew? Because they had changed overhead teams. And we'd kind of gotten lost in the paperwork shuffle. So we ended up, uh, they eventually pulled us out after 11 days with, you know, without a shower and all and, and oh got back. And later on that summer, we went on bigger fires in Yellowstone. Wow. One, two fires in the Grand Tetons actually started on the same day. And it was a windstorm came through with like 70 mile an hour winds and dropped uh, trees over power lines in both cases. Were you ever afraid? You know, I was. I think that summer, throughout my Park Service career in fire, I'd been afraid a few times. Um, but that summer, there was one day they told us, uh, get back up to the to the uh, Hellespot. Uh, we're going to fly everybody out. It was only like 2 o'clock in the afternoon, but we didn't really know it because we couldn't see the fire plume above us that was starting to blow up. So two crews got out. They had an Army Chinook helicopter came in, picked up the first crew. And we were a little late getting to the Hellespot. And I got there, and this guy goes, you got to go down the, the valley another mile and a half. There's two helicopters going to pick you up down there. Oh, so God. we ran down this thing. And you could see, you could hear the fire blowing up behind us. And, you know, smoke and wildlife just running past us. Oh, my God. Got down to the Hellespot. And it's just before dark. And the two helicopters came in and they threw everybody in and the pilot's like, that's all I can take on this, this run. And so he lifts off and he's a few feet in the air and decides he's going to land back down. He, he tells the uh, helitech people in the back, he says, get everybody on board. We, we've got enough, we've burned enough fuel. We can get out of here. So uh, we took off and circled over the fire at that point, which was this huge fireball for, for miles. Wow. And then flew out towards uh, Culture Bay. Wow, that's terrifying. I don't know how you do it, man. I'd be, <laughs> I'd be scared. I'd be scared. What was the most challenging thing you've ever had to face? The most challenging. And it, it, it uh, and it doesn't have to be like physically. I mean, in in whatever sense that means to you, it was the most challenging in your career? Because I'm sure you've. I mean, you've had such a long career and so many different things that you've done. I mean, one of the things that comes to, to mind for challenging is um, I was working at LBJ, Lyndon B. Johnson National Historical Park, and I just accepted a job at Big Cypress National Preserve in Florida. And already that season, I'd worked a wildfire and two hurricanes, uh, Katrina and um, Rita in Texas. And came back from that, and I had accepted a job in Florida. So I was moving truck was at my house. And my boss called my new boss, who, ironically, I had worked for him. Or he'd worked for me back at the Statue of Liberty years before. But so we knew each other pretty well. He says, "Well, you might as well tell the movers you're going to be take your stuff. If they have to go to Maine and drop somebody else's stuff off. Just keep your stuff on the truck." Because we've got a, a Cat 4 hurricane, Hurricane Wilma, bearing down on us in South Florida. And this was in sort of early October, which is late for a fire for a hurricane season. 
except for now. I mean, we get hurricanes and yeah. a year round practically now, um, you know, other than a few of the winter months. And they're just nor- nor'easters if you live up north. Um, so I, he calls me back a few minutes later and says, can you get over here as fast as possible? And I, so I had to drive through all this hurricane devastation from several other hurricanes. So I had to make sure I had extra fuel cans on board the, my truck and the moving truck had taken off. I told him to, to avoid the place for a while. And I drove pretty much nonstop. I think I stopped at my sister's house in, in uh, Houston and then drove as fast as I could to Florida. Uh, got there. We had one day to prepare and everybody was staying in a big hotel um, in Naples, Florida, and a hurricane rolled in right over top of us. So it was pretty wild. And imagine this is your first days of, of work in a new job, in a new yeah. state uh, with new employees. Uh, that was probably one of the most challenging things. You know, I've done all these other things, but you're kind of new to do all these things. You know, you put yourself in EMS or fire or law enforcement mode, uh, special events. But that one, it was it was different because you're coming into a new situation and uh, into a new park, uh, totally different climate than I've been in, um, in from Texas and other places. So that was probably the most difficult um, period in, in the National Park Service that I had. Um, yeah, I remember Hurricane Wilma was in 2005, I think. It was- uh, yes, October 2005. Yeah, it, uh, it was bad. <laughs> it came bad. through, uh, tore up Naples, uh, tore up to preserve. Um, one of the reasons they said, well, make sure your stuff stays out of it is, is you may not have a house to go to right? when when you get there. So uh, eventually they were able to get us all our utilities back on. They repaired buildings and things. But that was a kind of a period of about six, seven weeks of rapid, rapid adjustment. You know, yeah. my second day out, we were flying out into the preserve. And, um, I was used to landing on dusty hell spots. You'd land and, and you'd jump out and you'd be up to your knees in water. There's alligators and everything else running around snakes. And, um, when these natural disasters happen, what do you as a ranger do? Um, yeah. you, a lot of times, if you're if it's a big national disaster, your your uh, qualifications are written down someplace in di- one of the different coordination centers, and they'll give you a call up and they say, "Hey, are you available to go?" And you, you just uh, you get you go and you do whatever job they assigned you to. And what does that look like? Like for somebody that's like, oh, I want to be a ranger, because I think most people see rangers and they see them they're at the park during their vacation they don't realize that it actually means so many different things right um i got called when the space shuttle columbia uh, blew up over uh east texas and, and the southwest and louisiana oh my uh, we were called in because uh, the texas forest service who was managing it for nasa on the ground the recovery operation said hey we can call in all these helicopter people that work fire year-round and they're very familiar with remote locations and, and working as a team together. So I went to the Columbia disaster and uh, worked that, but it was totally not on any National Park Service land and you're doing stuff that's pretty, you know, we were inventing stuff to, you know, that, that was different from fire and, and some of the other hurricanes and other natural disasters that people had been on. 
the joke during the Columbia disaster was it was another big uh, disaster sort of happening in the in parts of the country where uh, chicken populations were, were were dying off and had this massive disease that they were worried it was going to wipe out the uh, the rest of the chickens and turkeys in the United States and wow. So they sent a lot of people to basically choke chickens and kill them off. And, and, and we were all, go, we're like, you know, we're, we're, we're set. We're here on the, <laughs> the Columbia disaster. You know, it's, it's sad at the whole people died. Uh, but you know, the astronauts, we even had uh, two of our own people in a helicopter crash that were killed, but we're all going, we could be choking chickens right now. So just, you do like a number of things. A variety of things, yeah. And wow. special events, each park would have a commemoration or an anniversary and you get called to go to stuff. And, and some of them were pretty fun to, op to do. Um, Devil's Tower, one of my things in the summer was the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally. And we had the 75th while I was there and it was a big deal. And we had brought in rangers from other parks to work and in in just our park at Devil's Tower, we would see uh, a big chunk of our visitation in one week. So you had to be able to deal with different crowds of people, uh, from motorcyclists to foreign tourists. At Shenandoah National Park, I worked with um, a lot of times we would have contact with the embassy staff from Washington, D.C. So you'd meet people from all over the world that would come. And, and uh, so you had to know how to deal with diplomats and you had to know, you know those kind of things. Basically, you're, do, you're doing everything, it feels like. It is. It was, And that's what made it such a fun job. I mean, when I moved around a lot. People asked me, well, why wouldn't you want to work in a state park? I said, well, you're kind of limited in what, where you can go. I'm sure there's great state parks in different states all over the country, and I've been to a lot of them. But this was, you could just travel and bounce from one end of the continent to the other. And if you wanted to move up, that's, that's the quick way to do it. Right. So, wow. I want to hear more about that Columbia, the Space Shuttle Columbia disaster. It was in 2003. There was, I think it was like seven astronauts. Seven astronauts killed, killed on it. Uh, it blew up over Lufkin, uh, Texas. I was probably in the first hundred people that were sent to it. Um, there was over 25,000 people from all over the United States, different agencies that were sent to this. Uh, they had ground crews basically search, searching the swamps of Louisiana and East Texas and in cold winter conditions and briars and things. And we were flying at 300 feet. We had 37 helicopters and 10 fixed wing aircraft. We were supporting Navy dive teams, um, dog teams. Was your job to recover or? Well, most of the astronauts had been recovered. There was one astronaut partial, uh, had some remains recovered on one of oh my, my first God. days there and they flew that to Barksdale air force base. Um, and which was where all the remains, of the astronauts then, uh, had been, had been taken, um, initially. And then eventually they were, you know, sent to their homes. Wow. So your job as a park ranger was to. My job on that assignment was to be a hella base manager. And that means you manage all the operations of, the aircraft uh, and helicopters that were on the ground, make sure, you know, do all the paperwork, the hold the meetings, make sure everything's right. being done safely, um, request resources to come in. And on a fire, it's a totally different thing. You're usually shuttling crews and, and working with helicopters that are dropping water. 
And on this one, they had all light helicopters. So we would have a, um, a pilot, a helicopter manager, which I later served as during this incident. I kind of switched jobs. They sent me home for two days. I came back and switched jobs into a helicopter manager's position. And we would, would fly. And then we had a, a NASA engineer in the back seat and a helicopter manager, uh, or not a manager, a crew member. So, um, so when it was happening, though, like what was the job of like all the 25,000 people, obviously, to recover the bodies or the remains? Recover the bodies and then to recover all the as much of the spaceship as they, they could find. Oh my God, that's which was so scattered crazy. over multiple states. I mean, they picked a, a few pieces up in, in New Mexico. Oh, and, my God. And then that's to bring it back as, as much, including the flight data recorders which was the big prize to figure out what had gone wrong with the, right. with the, uh, the shuttle. So we, they would find big pieces. And when I first got there, they were, it was like, I pull into the parking lot at the command center and there was a big section of the tail coming in on a semi truck. Oh my and they had, God. they had, um, uh, big fuel tanks. I remember flying one day with a, a helicopter pilot from the state of Texas, a state trooper. And we're flying over and we call in that we'd found something. And I said, don't worry, we know it's there. I see the ground crew pull up. <laughs> and it was uh, benzene or it's a real nasty toxic chemical. So then we see people get out with like the moon suits on and, and going over to this thing and trying to decontaminate the, uh, um, the, the tanks. But wow. we started flying these low air in areas where they couldn't get the ground crews in and uh, finding little pieces all over the place. Uh, one day we landed in a field and we're looking around. Our pilot says, I'm going to take a nap. You, you guys go off because we'd seen something in the air. He says, wake me up in about 15 minutes. It's probably going to take you that long to get down there. So we get down there and, and it turns out that somebody dumped a bunch of trash on the side of the road. So oh. that was a wild goose chase. And just then a, a person pulls up and he's in an old beat up rattled suburban and says, Hey, you boys from NASA, you want to come to my house? I got a bunch of pieces in the yard. I've been calling NASA for a week to tell them, come pick this stuff up. And we're like, yeah, sure. We'd love to. He says, hop in. And I was like, okay. The pilot doesn't know where we're going. So we disappear with this guy down the road. And uh, it was funny stories. The guys, I think it had a few beers and we're like, oh, we just gotten ourselves into a bad situation here. <laughs> He pulls out a handgun. He says, "Hey, you want to shoot some bottles on the side of the road?" He says, "No, we, we'd really like to get to the get to your house and get your get those pieces and bring them back." So, we 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 got there to his house and he introduced us to his whole family. These boys are from NASA, and so <laughs> we we sure enough, he pulls the tarp back. There's a whole bunch of stuff. It's got NASA tags on it and wow pieces, tiles, and, and things. And so we load it all up and take it back to the helicopter and get in the helicopter and take off. And, and wow. that's, we, we got up in the air. We told the air attack guy in a fixed wing airplane is circles around the whole incident all day, keeping track of all the helicopters that uh, we were back in the air. And he told us to head back to, to our base. We had a helicopter crash. So um, wow. that was just one day that was just crazy like that. But we would fly grid patterns. And I remember flying past in the Piney Woods, East Texas, flying past this hawk sitting in a, in a, in a tree. And he's kind of looking at us as we go by. And we went down and turned and did this tight pattern because they were like mild grids. We'd fly back with a helicopter over a couple hundred feet in the air. And the same hawk is on the other side of us now watching us <laughs> go by. 
So, <laughs> I mean, it was, it could be tedious. The weather was horrible half the time. Uh, in one two week work period of a, like an 80 hour work week, I flew 64 hours in a helicopter, which wow. is a lot of time just sitting crammed into a small helicopter. If you've ever flown in one, you're wearing a flight suit and some days you're freezing cold and other days it's hot as anything and you get your flight helmet on. And, um, that's an incredible story. I had no idea. It, and you know what? This whole thing, I'm sitting here and I'm learning so much about it, what a ranger does. It's such an interesting thing. And every every ranger and, and divisions in some of the other bigger parks I worked in, like uh, uh, Big Cypress National Preserve, they had uh, they had their own fire branch there. They had their own ranger branch, uh, their own aviation branch, which su supported everybody. They had a resource management division that had uh, um, they had their own swamp buggies. We had our swamp buggies. Uh, fire fire guys had their own swamp buggies. We had airboats that we would run. But resource management, I got to work with them on the Panther recovery project down there. And, wow! Uh, pick, you know, helped move a live panther one time, and um, wow! Another time we had one that had a collar on it that had been in, in, attacked by another panther and later died right in front of us. Literally, I watched what. You know, oh. endangered species just basically die and then carry this out of the swamp. And How did you feel? It, it was it was horrible, actually, because uh, I have a couple of pictures of it because we could hear it like growling and stuff. Oh. And I looked and the biologist like it's around here someplace. And I pointed to the ground and I said, there he is right there. And he was like six feet right in front of us. And he uh, was dying. You know, I, I never got to go on the on the lucky once when they would go out to the dens when the mothers had just had kittens and the biologists would crawl in these dens and bring them out and they'd give them shots and, and weigh them and stuff. Oh, and wow. That's incredible. I always had to do the hard jobs. Like, you know, we had another panther recover. We got there and found the collar still working, but it was in the summer and the conditions in the, in the Florida decay is pretty quick out there. Wow. Um, all we had was basically a skeleton uh, and, uh, and a, uh, with a collar on it. Wow. And that was, we were going through places with a swamp buggy and six feet of water to, to get out to this island. Wow. I'm learning so much about this whole thing. Okay. So that's pretty, those are pretty, pretty sad moments. Have you ever had, what was your like most fulfilling or favorite moment as a park ranger? Oh, uh, let's see. I met a lot of famous people during my career. Kings yeah. and queens and presidents and vice presidents and you know movie stars from california and stuff uh when i was at lbj um lady bird johnson was still alive and she was a former first lady of the united states wow so i would i interacted pr pretty good with her I, a friend of mine was was her, her one of her female agents so we got to know her pretty well and uh so things like that but i can think to to uh, special events that occurred while I was there uh, in New York. We had Operation Sail, I think it was 1992. And uh, they had all the tall ships came in. We were doing boat patrol in New York Harbor around the statue and, and watching the tall ships come in and the light laser shows and the fireworks and things like that. Um, that was one of the, the things that really made you, you know, proud to be in the park service and, and do all these special and cool events. Yeah. So, that must have been incredible. What, when was that? That was like... 19, 1992, I think it was July 4th weekend. 
Wow, that must have been so incredible. And it must have just felt so amazing to be out there to do what you're doing. And and that was, you know, pre 9-11. So the World Trade Center was still there. And oh, I had friends that uh, were working at the Statue of Liberty in Ellis Island that watched the towers fall down from the island there. Uh, 9-11 changed everything. Um, you know, uh, six months after that, I was I was in Philadelphia standing in front of Independence Hall with an M16 slung over my shoulder. Oh, my God. And, uh, you know, doing 12 hours on, 12 hours off for 21 days at a time. And then there was another assignment I, I sent to St. Louis. There was a threat to blow up the uh, arch in, in, in St. Louis. So we were sent there until the FBI was able to arrest the people that were making the threats in, in uh, wow. Chicago. It's so interesting because, yeah, it kind of changed your job. You know, obviously you were doing recovery and things like that, but now you were now defending, you know? Correct. I mean, we'd always been law enforcement. Um, I, I attended the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in Glencoe, Georgia, and pretty much everybody other than the FBI goes to to uh, Flatsy, one of their, their, their schools now. So you meet agents from all different aspects down there. But you were trained in law enforcement. I worked, uh, you know, murder homicide investigation in Shenandoah. I was, you know, working with the Rangers on that. Uh, we would have suicides and, and plane crashes and things like that. You'd have to do investigations on. I think one of the toughest things I ever had to do was do a death notification of oh. a guy whose daughter had been killed in Chicago and find the family. It was a bunch, it was like a brother, his, his other brother, uh, two guys, two brothers, uh, and their kids, and they were hiking the Appalachian Trail. And so I had to track them down and find yeah. them and, and break the news. But, um, you know, things like that, when you, you get uh, rescues and, you know, a person would survive and uh, everybody was happy. And, you know, even just common services to the public, you know, you help somebody with a tire or after a deer car MBA or something. And, and uh, so, you know, just people would just th say, oh, you did, you've done such a great, great thing for you. You know, it's tough uh, with law enforcement and the way people look at them right now in the United States. Hard. Um, it's always been, um, you know, tough to be in law enforcement and you just try to, you know, treat people like you, you want to be treated. Yeah. Yes. It's very hard right now for sure. And, uh, you know, it's just a strange, strange time. But, you know, your story, seeing what you've done and the service that you've done for others, it really shows what that job entails, especially when you're doing it for the National Park Service. Was When you worked in law enforcement, was it all for the National Park Service? Um, it was. Um, there was a few other um, things like the hurricanes and stuff. Um, we would Where go they just off. Pull Right, they're off pulling the, you off the park and work law enforcement. I mean, at one point we were deputized as U.S. deputy U.S. marshals, right. and within a couple of counties in East Texas, because Texas is a pretty uh, state that doesn't like to give up power to the federal government very often. But mm -hmm. after seeing what had gone on in Louisiana and New Orleans, um, when they heard there was a, an additional forty law enforcement officers showed up in their county. Uh, <laughs> To, to deal with Big Thicket National Preserve, where we were sent uh, in the Cachada Indian Reservation. Um, they, they immediately came over and deputized us as sheriffs of the different counties down there. So, wow. You know, so how, 
how does that work as like a ranger? Like, is there a difference between a ranger and law enforcement? We were federal law enforcement officers. We had jurisdiction nationwide. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that. There's people that don't realize that rangers can make arrests. And, but then there's people have to realize there's people, they don't realize that there's different people all wearing the same uniform, interpretive rangers that give the programs, you know, the natural and historical programs and walks and talks and things. And so there's always a little confusion there. It's like, well, we didn't know rangers, you know, when did you guys start carrying guns? And you say, you know, like 1916, right? <laughs> even earlier than that, you know, with the first couple of ranges they hired, in Yellowstone National Park in the 1870s. Right. Um, they were carrying weapons then. Um, so it's <laughs> a lot of people don't realize the law enforcement powers. And it's gotten more and more. I think during my career, things have changed where where there's a fine line in, in between job titles now. Uh, right. It used to be you did everything. And you know, so you got to do all these different things. You might give a talk to somebody. You might, uh, you know, you might work work with maintenance after a storm cleanup with running a chainsaw or fixing something. But everybody in the National Park Service works together under the incident command system and just general park operations. Right. So you get to know your jobs of everybody in the park because you rely on each other. You work in these remote locations. So basically, you're saying to me, when you're a national park ranger, you do have law enforcement authority that you when, are. The law enforcement rangers would have law enforcement authority. Okay. Um, the interpretive rangers wouldn't. You, they, they wouldn't. Could tell okay, you, so they could tell you that's that's illegal. You shouldn't do that. Right. But right, I could right. tell you, you can't do that. And if you don't stop, I'm going to arrest you or write you a citation. You know, those kind right. of things. So there's two separate, age, like not agencies, but two separate kinds of branches. Rangers. Yeah, right. correct. In the, in the ranger ranks. And then resource management wears the same uniform, but they're off doing their scientific stuff. And, right. Oh, wow. And preservation. Um, okay, so there's three. Um, there's three. And within law enforcement, it, this even gets more tricky. Um, in places like San Francisco um, and Washington, D.C. and New York, they have U.S. Park Police, which is uh, a whole police agency Wow. Uh, separate from the Rangers, because at the one time at the Statue of Liberty, the park police came in and took over the uh, operations here. We all moved on to other parks. Wow. Uh, okay. But then there's uh, special agents um, that work uh, doing investigations. These are the guys walking around in plain clothes. And, and, um, wow. Then the park rangers. And then, you know, there's a whole rank system of park rangers. There's, you know, the basic ranger, the seasonal ranger the basic permanent ranger, the uh, supervisory park rangers, and usually the chief ranger at that point. Wow. So, yeah, there's a whole different uh, branch yeah. hierarchy in law enforcement. I had no idea. I'm learning this right now. <laughs> I'm so, learning this right um, now. Wow. Okay, so who is your most meaningful person that you've ever met while working for the Park Service? I read that one before and I'm thinking, well, you know, I met famous people, but I think some of my supervisors, two in particular that I can think of were awesome. Um, I had one guy when I was a seasonal, it was kind of a jerk and I didn't get along with him very well. And, and the next year, uh, this other guy, Larry Bellis, who was a firefighter, hired me to work for him in uh, the southern part of Sequoia Kings Canyon. 
and he was awesome. He was great, great supervisor. I worked for him for two years. And then I left there and I went to the Tetons and uh, the district or sub-district ranger, a guy named Jeff Rader, um, was, was my supervisor. And he taught me a whole bunch and, and, and counseled me on. Uh, he mentored you pretty much. So he mentored me and, and kind of steered me in, in the right direction that I needed to go to get permanent. And uh, so those were probably the two most influential people that I met um, wow. in the park service. They kind of like helped you shape your career a little bit there. Correct. All right. You. What was your favorite national park? My favorite national park was the Grand Teton National Park. Okay. Um, I had been there once on, uh, on our big family vacation and we camped there. And I always thought, this is the perfect park. I mean, it's just spectacular. It really is. So, okay. So tips and tricks from you about this park that you want to share. Like if somebody's thinking about going there, what tips and tricks do you have? The park has changed. Uh, it's gotten more popular since I was there. It has. Uh, make sure you do your planning. Uh, the uh, variety of accommodations from Jackson Hole up to through Culture Bay range from basically uh, dude ranches and uh, cabins that you can rent, a whole bunch of campgrounds uh, to the Jackson Lake Lodge, which if you got some money to spend, then you, uh, I would I would definitely go there. But even if you're not staying there, I'd recommend you go there for their uh, buffet breakfast. You look out. <laughs> You look out over the Grand Tetons and eat your your moose waffles and, and all the all the stuff, and then you know work up a good appetite and then go on a good hike after that. What's your favorite hike? I would I liked going around Culture Bay, especially in the fall when I was there. As as the fire season wound down and I had a day or two off, um, I realized what was all around the park there. I would hike to the Jackson Lake Lodge and have lunch and then hike back. I would go out among the, the beaver ponds and see the moose and the coyotes and, and all the ducks and wildlife. Um, some of the, the parks, the trails in the southern part of the park going up into the, uh, in the mountains are spectacular. A little part of Grand Teton is called the uh, John D. Rockefeller National Parkway. And it's located it's just to the north of between Yellowstone and the Tetons. Most people go zipping through, they don't even realize it's there. And that area has got some uh, special backcountry area. You can drive what they call the Wilson uh, Road, which runs all the way over into Idaho. It's a backcountry road. You know, if you can't hike a lot, but you've got a decent four-wheel drive vehicle, you didn't even, we didn't even have to put it in four-wheel drive much when we drove the thing. Uh, it's worth worth going. Okay. And, and seeing wildlife back there. I saw great, great owls, uh, huge owls. Wow. There. Wow. I love that. I, I didn't know some of that stuff. Uh, I didn't know about that other side of the that highway. You know, some of the tourist things that if you're into horseback riding, take a horseback ride in the morning and go have breakfast and enjoy that. Spend, you know, go up to, uh, I think it's called Signal Mountain for the sunset up there. I love it. It's it, my favorite national park used to be Death Valley. And then this summer I changed it to the Grand Tetons because I just fell in love with it. If somebody's listening to this and they're, thinking about being a ranger and now they have a full understanding of what that looks like a law enforcement park ranger what is some advice that you can give them how do you prepare yourself for this journey the interesting thing about the national park service is they 
hire seasonal rangers. And when you get hired as a seasonal law enforcement ranger, you've usually attended a, a what they call a seasonal academy. And this may change in the next few years. They keep talking about this. You know, they're talking about hiring everybody permanent, but, you know, a different administration comes in. That, that'll change us. But in the past, and the way it's been for the past 30-plus years, uh, people would pay money, usually go to a community college. And it's usually somebody that's majoring in law enforcement or park management or something. And they would go to these, I think there's six or seven schools now, um, and you would go through the whole thing. They'd teach you to drive and shoot and constitutional law and defensive tactics and park service history and, and uh, case management, you know, teach you how, how to take photos and fingerprints and all the, you know, crime fighting skills and techniques out there. Uh, and then you would go to a, a park, you'd apply for the job. Then you would go to the park and you would get trained by a, a senior ranger to you. You might be trained by a, a long-term seasonal or a, uh, a permanent ranger. And if you work out well, you're working close with, with these rangers uh, during the summer, you would you know gain experience. Uh, basically, you could write tickets, you could make arrests with the assistance of a permanent ranger, the way they had things set up. And uh, after a couple of years and a couple of seasons, you'd start looking for permanent jobs. Uh, if you're a veteran and you're interested in the National Park Service, you can go one of two ways because your veteran status, you can apply for any permanent jobs that come along. And if you want to make it go a little faster, you might pay for a seasonal academy. You're going to be rise to the top of the list. You'll be the first one on the list that you'll get these. The supervisors and chief rangers will get these long lists of applicants and you look through their qualifications. That's what you do in the winter in Wyoming. You, you sit there and try to hire your summer staff. Uh, go over budgets and, and, and do a lot of hiring and shovel snow and things like that and get ready for the summer. But uh, that's that's the way to do it. Talk to some rangers in a, in a park nearby. Um, get other training if you can. If you're going to be a seasonal, like an emergency medical technician, wildland mm -hmm. fire certification, boat operation training, uh, rock climbing. At Devil's Tower, I ran the climbing program. I'm not a climber myself, but I would just hire some really top-notch people to do all the, the dirty work for me. I don't mind flying <laughs> helicopters, you know, sitting with my feet out the door, but I something about hanging on a rope. It's just uh, <laughs> That's where I come in. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've rode the, the hoist on helicopters, but then you've got a, like a three-quarter-inch steel cable that you're running down, and you're basically strapped into this thing. No, so there's a lot, a variety of, of positions, you know, urban parks, parkways, uh, battlefields. You know, if you're a history buff and a historian, you want to work in a park, you know, of all different, from the civil rights, the civil war, the American revolution, to the American expansion, uh, Native American cultural sites, you know, there's plenty of places to work. Wow. I love that. I mean, I think, yeah, your advice is just to, you know, talk to some rangers, get some training. And, you know, how do you prepare yourself emotionally for the job? Um, it's going to be tough. You're going to see stuff that, you know, you, you better harden up to it and you better learn to talk over your problems with, with other, other rangers, uh, you know, when things get bad. Because otherwise, you're not going to make it through a whole career. Yeah, emotionally, you got to deal with with people. You got to tell people they can't do stuff. I think it's gotten worse in the last few years. The graffiti, the trash, 
just the lack of respect for the national parks um, is increasing. And I'm not sure why. I think after uh, the coronavirus hit, uh, a new breed of people went out to the parks that really had never left home before, or they, they went. Sure to, did. They went to a cruise, or they went to Disney World, or they went to the shore in New Jersey, and places like that, or, or you know, Southern California, uh, professional football games and stuff. And they never. So all of a sudden, there people are finding new things to do, and they don't quite know how to act in a park. It's you know, the lack you, of education. Lack of education. When you arrive, you should. Even before you arrive, you get on getting the iPad. You know, I think now if, with computers the way they are now, what we had in the 80s when I was applying for jobs, you would write away for your application. They'd send it back. and You might get a letter in the mail. So you were just waiting by the mailbox every day for, yeah. or, or a phone call to come in, you know, on the thing. But now you can check out national parks. You can look at maps and, um, you know, look at YouTube videos of, of hiking in a national park or, kayaking or anything else like that so educate yourself on where you're going to go and when you get there follow the rules um the things that i've seen in the last few years uh, i call them selfie deaths it's where mm-hmm. somebody's standing on a on a, uh, on a on a on a cliff like this look 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 and then you hear two people fell into the grand canyon or you know off a cliff in yosemite and if they tell you don't swim in the waterfall above yosemite falls don't um <laughs> Don't pet the, pet the bears. Go even go near the bears. They in Yellowstone they have um, guides saying how fast a bear or a bison can run. Uh, don't swat the bison on the butt. I mean, I can't believe people, people would actually do that. Oh, and and you can look on YouTube. There's people flying through the air and landing in trees. And, My God, um, you know, I always said that that um, park visitors kept rangers employed because if. You know, if people follow the rules and regulations and, and had respect for things, um, we wouldn't really be needed or as many of us. Uh, so, Yeah, it's such a strange time. I, you know, when I went to Yellowstone, so many people, there's just an over amount of people where it just felt like I was in Disneyland in the middle of a pandemic. You know, I was so shocked. And it's people that I don't usually see in these places you know like there is a there is a characteristic there's the people that respect you know the natural land and then there's the people that don't and because they don't understand because they don't have enough education that if you throw a a plastic bottle on a trail that that plastic bottle is not going to go anywhere someone has to pick it up and somebody has to pick it up eventually and maybe 100 years it'll it'll go away maybe Um, you know (laughs) don't leave food around for the for the bears there's a reason they have you know bear-proof containers and food yeah. regulations. You're cooler on the picnic table. Um, yeah. they don't, you know, people don't realize how many bears are, are have to be killed by the Park Service oh. because they've become habituated. Um, yeah. The same with, with, you know, feeding deer and moose and things like yep. that. Yep. Um, it's just all it's, it's, the worst in Big Cypress. Um, oh, gosh. You get one of those that's been habituated and you had you got a problem on your hands. Oh. Yeah, that's what I mean. I think it's just a lack of knowledge and education because, like you said, especially during this pandemic, every one of my hiking trails that I once was like a secret hiking trail is now, you know, packed with people. And so I've seen more trash on the trail. I have to pick it up, you know, because who else is going to do it? And it's it's just I hope that 
you know, yes, it's great. These people are going back into nature, but man, we need to educate them more. There's so a, a, a program called Leave No Trace. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. That uh, you can take classes in it. Um, if you're new to backpacking or wilderness activities, uh, that kind of talks about how to respect the, the backcountry and the environment and live basically leaving a no trace. You know, you come home with your photos, but don't take your selfie photo on the cliff. <laughs> but uh, take home, come home with your photos and post them on Instagram and and, uh, yeah. and how to do it safely. Do you have one interesting item that you take with you when you travel? Not the obvious, I, obviously. That I take with me, hiking, or something that you purchase. Well, something I'll show you something that I purchased. I take a lot of things. Um, when I was in the Amazon jungle in Peru, <laughs> I brought back this paddle. And I brought it back on a commercial airline. This is pre 9 11. You could just walk on board with this thing. Nobody oh my God. didn't say anything about it. So, so it's, a, it's a, for people who are listening, he has a massive, massive paddle that you can and it's, take. It's, a, it's an original. I purchased, I basically traded with a guy. I didn't even buy it. I had some, some trading trinkets that I took with me and a backpack right. and some boots. And I traded for this paddle. So that's <laughs> sort of one of my prized things. I have a lot of uh, native art from uh, Inuit culture. Ba basically, you like to purchase something that's like native to that place. Correct. You know, something I can't find at home. Yep. Uh, yeah. I love it. I love it. So, you know, I, I take, make sure you're well prepared for the trip that you're going on. Uh, get good clothing. Don't, you know. Make sure you've got sun protection and warmth. Um, and I, I'm, I'm buying, I, I find I spend money on like wool clothing. Yes. Uh, marina, marina wool, everything kind of stuff. And, and yes, marina wool is the best. And stuff like that. Good hiking shoes and, and just be prepared for where you go. Um, your cell phone is not going to work everywhere. You might have to get yourself a, uh, a GPS unit or uh, what they call a Oh, uh, what do they call those things? I have one. I just bought it. I haven't activated it yet. Um, it's basically a satellite linked emergency yes. device. Yes. I want <laughs> one of those. I want one of those. Um, hold on. I think. Where is it? Oh, that's my other. One of these. <laughs> yes. The Garmin. That's the one I want. This That's is the one I want. Beach Explorer. It's a little heavy. Yeah. Uh, the, the Appalachian Trail because I used to like to call I call home, you know, when I'm out. Yeah. And, and also just for emergency purposes, you know, you it, have it's great. And it's, I think you can put maps. I haven't even really explored it yet. So I'm I'm waiting for the chance, you know, if we go on a big international trip, I might use it for that. It'll yeah, it has maps. It it's has got maps. Um, I could send you a text message if you were one, on one of my lists. Yep. saying, you know, where I am and, and I'm okay. Or, um, yeah. you know, yeah. I rec highly recommend them go to REI. They'll talk your, your, uh, your ears <laughs> off on, on, uh, all the available ones. I think that's where I got that. I used my dividend check. That's great pieces of advice that you, that you just, and, and the thing with, with cell phones now they make, uh, I have a, a little device. It's uh, basically a battery brick and I can get mm -hmm. three full charges on my cell phone. You, uh, when you're backpacking, like on the Appalachian Trail, you can't use, if you don't put it in airplane mode, it'll run the battery down in, yeah. in a couple hours. 
but uh, you can use it for navigation. There's apps that you can get on the on the app store. Mm -hmm. Gaia. Uh, what's another one? Gut hook. Gut hook. Oh yes. Yeah. They, they make a lot of the different long distance trails, like Pacific Crest Trail, maybe the John yes. Muir Trail, Appalachian Trail. Um, yes, I talked to somebody who just was talking about Gut Hook, and I've never heard of it before. I use Gaia in all trails, but for those backpacking trips, those really long ones, those through hikers, Gut Hook is supposed to be amazing. Where can we find you? You can find me on Instagram. My name on there is uh, Gilmore1638. Uh, G I L M O U R, and the numbers one six three eight. Um, that's the year, my first year, uh, our family arrived in the new world here on our, one of our first big traveling ventures. Wow. <laughs> well, Mike, thank you so much for joining me on the Roaming the Earth podcast, stories and adventures of people who are jet setters, nomads, and explorers. This is Drea Castro signing off. Join us again next time. Stay wild. If you're interested in hearing more stories from around the globe, don't forget to subscribe, share it to your friends, and follow me on Instagram on I'm Roaming the Earth.